You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. We come today to, uh, to Easter, and I have to admit, as a, as a pastor, this is like the Super Bowl of, uh, of our faith, and so um, to use a sports analogy, um, it's, it, you feel like you, you ought to bring the best that you could possibly bring, and, and yet uh, today is actually just like last Sunday. Um, what was true last Sunday is true this Sunday. Um, it's an ordinary day, and yet it's an extraordinary day. It's normal, and yet it's supernatural what we remember and what we proclaim. Uh, but that's exactly what we do when we gather as a church, and it's what we are doing with a, an even heightened sense of the reality of what Christ accomplished when he came. We remember that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that he's coming again. Uh, that's what we do as we gather together as a church family. We continually call back to our minds through the word of God, the truth of Christ's death and his resurrection and his soon coming return. Uh, and we proclaim that as we sing songs and as we open his word, as we celebrate believers baptism, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're remembering and proclaiming that Jesus has died, that Jesus has risen, and that Jesus is coming again. Uh, and because that's true, what that means today is that we have, as one of my favorite artists, uh, Andrew Peterson says, because that's true, we have nothing to fear and everything to gain. Because Christ has died and has risen and is coming again, that means that all of us can, can gather together with the confidence that it is not death to die. And that there's a difference between living and having new life. That, that's what the, the promise of resurrection holds out to us, is that uh, what we have here isn't everything. That sin and death and brokenness in this world won't get the final word. But that Jesus has spoken. And that he gets the final word. And on the cross, he said it was finished. And when he rose from the dead, he said, I'm coming back again. And those two realities mark our lives as Christians. And if you don't know Christ, I pray today as you hear the message of the gospel through Luke chapter 23, as we look at Jesus's prayers on the cross, that you can not just hear those words as information, but you can hear those words as an invitation to good news. To know that what he did on the cross, what he finished on the cross was for us. And when he said he's coming back again, he intends to come back for his own. To take them to be with him forever and us to enjoy being in his presence forever. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 23. Uh, and I, I had us coming to this passage as we closed up our uh, series uh, on prayer. Uh, this week and next week we'll be kind of wrapping up some things in our series on prayer. But for the first three weeks, we looked at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Many of you are familiar with that prayer. Uh, it was given to us not to pray uh, verbatim all the time, just by rote memory, but to pray in a pattern, a pattern of adoration, a pattern of submission, a pattern of dependence. Uh, and then we looked at the high priestly prayer in John 17. It's, it's kind of Jesus's uh, longest prayer that we have. And uh, it's just really right before he's going uh, to the cross and uh, will be crucified and, and resurrected. And in his prayer and the high priestly prayer, we see his desire for his people. 
uh, to see his glory, to know who he is and why he came, to, to understand that, uh, that he's called us to be set apart uh, by his word, to, to live in obedience to his word. That's what it means to be sanctified and to be sent into the world, that we are his people and we bear witness to him as we tell the truth about the gospel, as well as as we live out our lives together as brothers and sisters in Christ in, in unity in the body of Christ. Well, uh, as we uh, continue thinking about this theme of prayer today, as we celebrate Easter, I want us to look at Jesus's prayers on the cross. Three particular prayers There's seven statements that Jesus makes on the cross, but three of them, uh, we could consider them as prayers, if you will. And uh, as we see these prayers of Jesus on the cross, we're actually going to find that his prayers on the cross tell us what he's about to do for us through the cross. So Jesus' prayers on the cross tell us what he did for us through the cross. As he prays, in, in essence, he prays the gospel, uh, the gospel truth for us and, and what he's accomplished for us. We're going to be mostly in Luke chapter 23, which we've heard read in its entirety, and then we're going to skip over uh, or flip back, if you will, to Matthew 27 uh, and look at uh, one of Jesus' statements and prayers on the cross uh, there. The first... First thing I want us to see is in Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 34. We heard recorded how Jesus was um, ultimately uh, betrayed uh, by Judas as he was in the garden praying and, and arrested and, uh, and taken by the Sanhedrin and, and put on trial, faces the Sanhedrin at the end of Luke chapter 22. And the Jews at this time, they have... Uh, authority religiously over the people, but they have no authority to put anyone to death because they're under the rule of the Romans. And so they send Jesus to Pilate, uh, who is in charge uh, of, uh, of the area in which Jerusalem is located. And there's kind of this back and forth between Pilate and Herod and who has jurisdiction. Uh, but the, the, the conclusion of the matter as Jesus goes before Herod and before uh, Pilate is that Jesus is innocent that he's not guilty of what they have charged him with, of blasphemy and, and, and stirring up the people and, and all of these statements. And, uh, and ultimately, uh, Pilate comes to the conclusion that he's going to beat him and release him. But as the people, uh, the, the very people perhaps who had gathered around the streets of Jerusalem and had yelled Hosanna on Palm Sunday, they now are gathered around Pilate's house yelling, crucify him, crucify him crucify him and they wouldn't relent and as Pilate uh, says he's going to release him um, and, uh, and and carry on they won't relent and continue to cry crucify him and so Pilate gives in and he agrees to have him crucified and and he releases a prisoner who was guilty of insurrection and murder uh, which was accustomed to release uh, a, a Jewish person on the Passover at this time and and so Barabbas, the guilty, goes free as Jesus, the innocent, goes to the cross. And we see as Jesus is carried uh, to the cross uh, and put upon the cross, we come to verse 32, and it says that as it so happened, Jesus wasn't crucified by himself that day, but he was crucified with two other criminals. And they put those three crosses up, and Jesus was put there in the center cross, and two criminals were on his side, it tells us. And it says, when they arrived at that place just outside of Jerusalem called the Skull, also known as Golgotha, uh, if you go there today, uh, still recognizable. And it was there that they crucified him, 
Verse 32 says, along with the other criminals, verse 33. And then verse 34, we see these words of Jesus. His, his, what's on his mind, what's at the forefront of, of his thoughts as he is hung up on a cross, strung up with nails in his hands and nails in his feet, is this prayer. Father, forgive them because they know not what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots for them. See, Jesus goes to the cross and we see as he prays on the cross for forgiveness, we're reminded that forgiveness comes through the cross. Forgiveness comes through the cross. Jesus came for this very purpose. This was the fulfillment of the Father's plan in eternity past and the fulfillment of what uh, we see in the Gospels when Jesus was born. And in the Gospel of Matthew, it tells us that at the birth of Jesus, it was announced that, that this child should be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The plan of salvation from eternity past and brought into play at the incarnation of Jesus, which we remember and celebrate at Christmas, was all pointed to Easter. It was all pointed to the cross. Jesus came to save us from our sins and forgiveness is necessary for us to be saved from our sin. Forgiveness is necessary for us to be made right with God. And so here Jesus is, as he goes to the cross, he's thinking of us because this is why he came. This was the purpose for which he came to to provide forgiveness of sins through the cross. And it's actually in verses 35 through 39 that the the mocking of the crowd actually reveals what the cross is all about. In many ways, it reveals the true wonder of the cross, uh, the true miracle of the cross. Because look at what the crowd says as Jesus is on the cross, as the people stood by watching. You know, you, you have to remember that the crucifixion by the Romans, they had perfected it and they were particularly brutal at it. And uh, it was somewhat of a spectator sport, if you will, that people would come and observe what had taken place. And, and of course, Jesus uh, was no insignificant figure. Uh, all of history uh, tells us outside of Christianity, outside of Christian sources, that this man lived. He taught. He said these things. He upset the Jewish leaders of the day. He upset the Romans and they really hung hung him up on a cross to die. That is without dispute today. And so as the crowds watched and observed what happened, it says even the leaders who were there began to scoff as they looked at what unfolded. And it says they scoffed and they said, listen, they, they preached the gospel without even realizing it. Listen to what he said. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also joined in, apparently mocking him. And they came to offer him sour wine. And they said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. They go on and it says that they had already previously put up uh, on the uh, the cross a sign above it that said, this is the king of the Jews. Uh, We're told in one of the other gospels that the Religious leaders didn't want to say this is the king of the Jews. They wanted to say this man says he's the king of the Jews. But he really was. And here the king of the Jews and the king of the world hangs on the cross. And one of the criminals that was hanging there said to him, Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. But here's the wonder of the cross. Jesus can save us because he didn't save himself. Jesus can provide forgiveness for our sins because he didn't take himself off 
the cross. What you have to understand is that the man on the cross, the man on the tree, is the one who was in the beginning who created all things. The Scripture says all things came into being through Him, and without Him nothing comes into being, and in Him all things hold together. So the one who created all things and in whom all things hold together is put up on a cross. And he was held on the cross not because he was unable to come down. It wasn't a question of power that day. It was a question of God's will. It was a question of God's plan. And it was the plan of the Father to put the Son on the cross in our place and for our sin so that we might be forgiven. Forgiveness comes through the cross. Because Jesus doesn't take himself off the cross, but instead willingly puts himself on the cross. And, and, and in, the, in the Gospel of John, it says that he did not have his life taken from him, but he gave his life. He laid down his life for us. The beauty and the wonder of the cross that he forgives us because he doesn't save himself. He saves us because he doesn't come down from the cross. Remember that truth today as we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection. That it wasn't an unfortunate set of circumstances that put an innocent Jesus up on the cross to die an exemplary death. But it was the will of the Father in eternity past so that the Son might lay down His life according to God's plan, according to the free grace and mercy of God, that anyone who would turn to Him and receive what He's done for them might be forgiven. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15 that this, is a say, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he adds, of whom I am the foremost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This was the purpose for which Jesus came. In Jesus' prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I, I want you to see two things. I want you to see both Jesus' mission, His purpose, and I want you to see our condition. His purpose and, and our condition. The sinless one came to die for sinners. It's important that we understand who is who. Right? Jesus is the sinless one up on the cross for us. We are the sinners. If you were to put yourself in the story, if I were to put myself in the story, I would have been the one at the foot of the cross, at the foot of uh, Herod's house, Pilate's house, excuse me, yelling, crucify him. And at the foot of the cross, mocking and scoffing. And though that is who surrounded Jesus that day, and that is indeed who we ourselves are, Jesus on the cross, the sinless one, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He says they know not what they do, not because it dismisses their responsibility and their guilt. They didn't understand the full picture of what God was doing, and yet they were guilty of putting the sinless one upon the cross, and not only in their direct actions, but in the very reality of our sin that required a payment, that required a price to be paid for sin to be forgiven. I've, I've heard this said by the pastor and author Tim Keller that I think is, uh, is perhaps the most uh, succinct way of saying it. All forgiveness requires substitutionary sacrifice. 
And so track with me here for a minute. Sometimes people look at Christianity and, and they, they think, I, I love the ethic of Christianity. I love the idea that you guys say, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I love the ethic of Christianity that says we ought to love all people. The idea that we are all made uh, with equality didn't come about through evolutionary humanism, but it comes about through a belief that there is a creator and that we're made in the image of God. There's no equality without a reality that we're made in the image of God. So there's, there's a sense in which many people today would say, I like the ethic of Christianity. But the message of Jesus dying on the cross, God suffering for our sin, almost sounds barbaric. <clears throat> How, how could that be that suffering is the means by which forgiveness comes? And I submit to you that if you've forgiven anyone, you know that it requires substitutionary sacrifice. It requires you to bear the weight of, of what they've done to you, to take that upon yourself. Put yourself, you're, you're, you're taking what they've done and you're putting it on you and not holding it against them. When that friend has cut you with their words, when that person betrayed your trust, when, when, when that person uh, intentionally uh, abandoned you or something that's taken place and you, achieve, and you extend forgiveness, whether it's big or whether it's small, whether it's the, uh, the, uh, the, the careless word that's spoken or the intentional act that's done, when, when you've been forgiven or when you forgive somebody else, it requires you to take the, the weight of what they've done and bear it yourself and not hold it against them. Because the only other option is to, to bring it back onto them. And you're like, now, that's what, now we're talking, all right? Like when somebody does something wrong to you, you're ready to bring it back on them. You want them to feel the pain that they've caused you. But if you forgive, you bear that pain. You become the substitutionary sacrifice to extend forgiveness to others. Friends, what's true of us in our horizontal forgiveness is true in a cosmic sense of the vertical forgiveness that God grants to us. That in order for there to be forgiveness, there had to be one who took our place and bore the guilt and the judgment that we deserve. And that's what Jesus did. That the sinless one came to die for sinners. And the only way we, us who are guilty, can go free if it's really true that Christ died for you and me. That's the only hope that we have is that he died in our place and for our sin. And, and I think as we wrap our minds around this, there's two, kind of, uh, there's two kind of ditches that we can fall into as we think about this message of forgiveness that comes through the cross. We can either be blind to our need for it, or we can be unsure of God's ability to actually do it. Blind to our need or unsure of God's ability. Here's, here's what it means to be blind to our need. It means we think to ourselves, I'm not that bad. I know that I'm not perfect. I don't do everything right, but I'm not that bad. And maybe you have in your mind who's really bad and you're like, well, I'm not like that. And I think when we do that, if we think we don't need God's forgiveness, we underestimate our sin. We underestimate God's holiness. You see, with the holiness of God... There, there's not a tolerance for a little bit of sin. There's not a, an ability to sweep a little bit of sin under the rug. If God is perfect and just, then there can't be a qualification for a little sin over here or uh, a pushing aside of a little sin as if it's not a big deal. See, what, what Jesus' death shows us 
is that sin is a really big deal. And that God is uncompromising in His holiness. You see, because it's either Jesus on the cross or it's us bearing the judgment for our sin. Those are the options. It's not that the the judgment can be swept aside. It's either you bear it or Jesus bears it in your place. It's me or Tim. That's the seriousness of sin. We can't be blind to our need, but I don't know if you've been here, but I, I think not only most, I think most people, if they're honest in their heart of hearts, know that they have a need. The truth is we can't even live up to our own standards let alone God's standards. We, we know we have a need. But there's also this question, is, is God really able? Is God really able to forgive me? You don't understand what I've done, or I keep doing this. I find myself in the same place again. I, I want you to know if that's you. If you question whether or not you are beyond God's forgiveness, if you doubt that God could forgive you, I want you to know that you're underestimating God's grace and His mercy that's available to us through the cross. Because there is no sin. There is no rebellion. There, there, there is no shame that's beyond the reach of God's grace and His mercy because of the cross. That's what He provides. Forgiveness through the cross. <laughs> He did it for those who were blind to their need, just like those who are gathered around the, the cross that day, and just like uh, it is still today, those who maybe think they don't need it, as well as those who maybe think they're beyond God's ability. He proves once and for all, because He didn't come off the cross but stayed on it, that He's able to forgive to the uttermost. You bring your sin to Him and receive the forgiveness that only He can provide through the cross. We may feel like we can't pray for him or pray to him sometimes. Maybe, maybe we, we feel like I can't bring this to him, but here he is on the cross praying for us. Here he is on the cross taking the posture of intercession. Here he is on the cross bearing the message of forgiveness. What was designed for, for torture and for judgment, Jesus took in our place and extends to us forgiveness and acceptance. That's, a, that's the wonder of the cross. Forgiveness comes through the cross. But the second prayer I want us to see is that Jesus took our place on the cross. So go to Matthew 27, flip back uh, to the first gospel in the New Testament. Uh, probably just a few pages for you. Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 and 46. And in Luke 22, it tells us that, um, or Luke 23, it tells us that... Um, <clears throat> After it was about noon, darkness came over the whole land until three because the sunlight had failed. And it says that the curtain of the temple was split down the middle and Jesus called out with a loud voice. We'll come back to this in a minute. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. Well, we're told in Matthew 27 uh, in all of this, something else that, that Jesus prays. As, as the sun fails and as darkness covers the land, Matthew 27 verses 45 through 46 says this. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out on the cross. Eli, Eli, lamach sabachthani, it said in Aramaic. That is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here in this prayer, in this cry of, uh, of abandonment, of forsakenment, forsakenness, we, we see the, the reality of what Jesus was doing on the cross. Forgiveness could come through the cross because of what Jesus was bearing while he was up on the cross. Here we see that um, there's an absence of the, the address to, to God as Father. You notice he says in the beginning, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. At the end, after it was finished, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Here he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's, it's showing how God deals once and for all with humanity's sin. As he's on the cross, he's bearing the judgment of God. And it's important for us to ask, in what sense is Jesus abandoned, or some of your translations say forsaken, on the cross? What does that mean for Jesus to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, I want us to understand that it, first of all, doesn't mean, it cannot mean that Jesus ceases to be God on the cross. It cannot, it does not mean in any way that the relationship within the Godhead was severed somehow. For the, for the sacrifice of Christ to, to be of effect, it had to, to be God himself dying in our place for our sin. But, but instead, what, what we see taking place is that, that Jesus is bearing the, the wrath of God against our sin. He is in, in himself, in his body, on the tree, on the cross, bearing the judgment of God against sin. Bearing the full wrath of God against sin. This is what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus was in the garden, it says that he went, he went to the garden and uh, he was there. And uh, he went a little further beyond the disciples and he began to pray. This is uh, Matthew 26, verse 39. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came a little, came back and the disciples were asleep. And, and Jesus says, can't you stay awake and pray? You won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. He goes again and he prays the same thing. My father, if this cup cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Why have you forsaken me? He is drinking the cup of God's wrath against our sin. And he drinks it dry. Every last drip of the judgment of God against sin, Jesus bears on himself. One commentator said, Jesus isn't calling for Elijah as the people mistakenly think. He's not working out his relationship with the Father. He's working out our salvation. In this, we, we recognize our own sinful cry and his sinless voice. We know the answer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken for our sin and for our salvation. The Bidianubwile in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, he lays it out this way. There are three things that are happening, three aspects of abandonment, social abandonment. He's, uh, he's forsaken by all his friends, emotional desertion uh, in, in which he is alone and beaten. And then ultimately, and most importantly, spiritual wrath is what is, is taking place here. The reality of what Jesus endures on the cross is what awaits any person who is apart from Christ. The wrath of God against sin. 
But what, what, what Jesus, when he cries out on the cross, why have you forsaken me? It reminds us that we can be forgiven because Jesus was forsaken on the cross. Jesus bears the wrath of God against the sin of humanity on the cross in our place. Here's the heart of the gospel, friends, that Jesus died in our place. Say that with me. Jesus in my place. Say it with me. Jesus in my place. That's the heart of the gospel. That Jesus goes to the cross and dies in our place and for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. In what sense did he become sin? He didn't sin on his own. He had no guilt for himself that he had to bear. He became our sin by bearing the guilt and the judgment of God against our sin. God's wrath against our sin. He bears in himself on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what we get through Jesus' death on the cross. We deserve God's uncompromising judgment because of our sin. But, Because Jesus died in our place, Jesus in my place, what we get instead is God's undeserved grace because he died in our place and for our sin on the cross. This is the great exchange of Christianity. What we deserved was uncompromising judgment. What we get is undeserved grace. Not because we worked harder and smarter and better than the next person, but because Jesus in my place. That's the message of the gospel. The invitation of Christianity is don't work to earn God's grace. Don't try to merit it. Don't try to run from it. Don't sweep your sin under the mat. Instead, bring your sin to Him. Let Him take the uncompromising judgment of God against your sin and receive the undeserved grace and mercy of God through Jesus. And in many ways, you can take the first two prayers of Jesus on the cross, the prayer of forgiveness and his cry of abandonment. And as one author said, the first required the second. The, 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 cry, the prayer for forgiveness required the abandonment of Jesus on the cross. The second secured the first. Because Jesus died in our place, he secured for us forgiveness. Together, they humble our hearts and silence our words and fuel our worship. That Jesus died in our place so that we might be forgiven. When you think about that truth and, and what it secures for it uh, for us, I also want to encourage us in, in this way. There's, a, there's an encouragement for us as it relates to what do we do when life gets hard or when we're hurting? Jesus is, is bearing the, the ultimate... Uh, you talk about the ultimate wrath of God against sin, the ultimate suffering. And here in this moment, Jesus is crying out to God in the words of Scripture. He prays Psalm 22 is what he's quoting. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows he's bearing um, not only the judgment of God, but according to the fulfillment of the Scriptures, just like it said in um, not only in the Psalms, but in Isaiah. In Isaiah 53.10, it said it was the will of the Father to crush the Son, the servant, who would, who would bear our sins. By his wounds we are healed. By his stripes we are forgiven, is what the prophet Isaiah said 800 years before Jesus hung on the cross. He knows he's fulfilling Scripture, and in the moment of his suffering, he's praying. And so what do we do when life gets hard? What do we do when we're hurting? How do we turn to God in the midst of that time? 
And, and here I think we have a, uh, an, an instruction and a, a picture of what we can do. We can remember to whom we pray, and then we can pray God's words. We, we pray to the one who knows our suffering. And I heard it put this week, Jesus' cry on the cross sanctifies our own why questions. It helps us to know that even we can't make sense of things and we cry out to God to, to understand why, that we, we know we come to a God who understands and who cares. We may not always understand or get the answer that we desire, but we can be sure that Jesus hears us and he bears us up. Because we have a Savior who went to the cross, Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16 says we have a high priest, one who represents us before God. That's what Jesus is, uh, who 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 is merciful and compassionate. He says he was, he's, he's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are yet without sin. So let's come to him with confidence and draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find help in our time of need. We, we must remember to whom we pray. And when we go through our hard and we go through our hurting, and we go through our suffering, we go through our trial, We come to the one who knows and who sees and who understands. And then when we can't get any words out, we can remember God's words. We we may not uh, have the words that come to mind when one person stated, when lesser words won't do and other words won't come, pray God's words. When lesser words won't do and when other words won't come, cry out to God in his own words. We all will face challenges. We all will walk through hurt. And uh, the heart of Christianity tells us we have a God, not who tells us to white-knuckle it through our suffering and through our pain, but one who suffered in our place, who knows, who sees, who draws near, and who bears up. Not only did he die, but he rose again, and he's going to make all things right one day. We can remember to whom we pray and pray his words. And then finally, to flip back to Luke chapter 23, we remember, we see in Jesus' prayer that the cross is enough. In Luke 23, verses 44 through 46, we see this final statement that Jesus makes on the cross. After Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The land goes dark for those three hours. It says that at that point, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The, the very thing that separated the people from the presence of God was now ripped open. The very presence of God made available through the death of Christ on the cross. And it says that Jesus in that moment cried out, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And saying this, he breathed his last. Here in his final prayer, Jesus entrusts himself to the Father, not because he was overcome by the cross, but because he had completed the work that he came to do on the cross. His work was finished. And, and, and as I said earlier, when we look at what Jesus did on the cross, we don't look at a circumstance, a series of unfortunate events that led to this innocent uh, Messiah dying on the cross. We see the plan of God fulfilled. We see the work of God completed. He didn't have his life taken. He laid it down. His spirit wasn't taken from him either. He gave it up. He entrusted to the Father because he completed the work that the Father gave him to do. And, and we see this statement uh, in, uh, in, in John chapter 19. The statement is put explicitly right before Jesus prays, into your hands I commit my spirit. He cries out on the cross three words that testify of the power of what Jesus did when he died. 
It is finished. The work is done. There's nothing else to do. The work of salvation, God's plan of redemption completed on the cross. And Jesus prays, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he breathes his last. I was thinking about this idea that it is finished. And I think about my own life, I think about my own work, and, and perhaps this resonates with you. We live in a world in which there's always something else to do. And if you feel this way, our work is never done. There's always work to be done, and there's never enough time to do the work. Some of you students are like, amen, can you tell my professor that? Um, whether it's in your home or whether it's at your job or your job that's also at home. It's hard to get anything done. It's hard to complete anything. It always feels unfinished and undone. But in a world that's full of incomplete to-do lists and needing to do more and never having enough time, Jesus' words cut through it all. And he says, there's one thing that's done. There's one thing that doesn't require any more work for you to do. There's not enough work you could have done. The only work that could be done was the work that I did, and it is finished. Nothing left to do. Nothing that we could add to his work to complete it. He completed it perfectly. When it comes to our salvation, there's nothing left for us to do. There's nothing that we could add to complete it. All we can do is receive what he has finished for us. The cross is enough. And Jesus cries out, it is finished, and entrusts his spirit to the Father. He has completed, perfectly obeyed all that God the Father had given him to do. His perfect obedience that, uh, that we could describe as his active and his passive obedience that, that was the, the mark of his whole life. Here he is, just as he submits himself to the Father at the end, he has submitted himself to the Father's will throughout. And he goes to the cross in our place. And as Philippians 2.8 says, he was found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He completed the work. To say that, that it is finished is to say that the cross is enough. To say that, that it is finished is to say there's nothing left for us to contribute or add to that work. Instead, we receive the finished work of the cross. We rest in the finished work of the cross. We rejoice in the finished work of the cross. We live in light of the finished work of the cross. When everything else is undone in our life, the one thing that is done is Jesus' death on the cross for us and for our sin. The cross is enough. And when we gather together on Easter Sunday, we gather to remember that the cross is enough. And do you know how we know that the cross is enough? We know that the cross is enough because there's a tomb outside of Jerusalem that's empty. And there's a throne in heaven that's occupied. It tells us in Luke chapter 24 that on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb bringing spices they had prepared, and they found the tomb with the stone rolled away. 
And they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood before them in dazzling clothes, two angels. And they said to the women who were terrified and bowed down to the ground, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Ask the men. He is not here. He is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when you were in Galilee, saying it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed in the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven, the twelve disciples minus Judas, and to all the rest, Mary Magdalene, Joanne, Mary the mother of James, the other women who were with them, who were telling the apostles all these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them. They couldn't believe it. They didn't believe these women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. And when he stooped in to look in, he saw only linen cloths. So they went away amazed at what had happened. You see, Jesus not only prays for our salvation on the cross, but because of his resurrection, we know that Jesus is actually the answer to that prayer. Because of the resurrection, what Jesus prays for, for our forgiveness And for the finished work of the cross, we know that his completed work on the cross was accepted by the Father for us because he was raised from the dead. It shows us that he is the answer for the prayer of our salvation, for our forgiveness, for for our reconciliation to God. It, It means that the resurrection tells us that we can be fully and freely forgiven. The resurrection tells us that sin doesn't have the last word but that Jesus does. Forgiven through the death and resurrection of the Christ, because He rose, we can be confident that what He did on the cross was sufficient for our salvation. And I don't know if you feel like sin has the last word in your life right now, but can I challenge you and encourage you today to remember the resurrection? Jesus gets the last word. And maybe you don't feel like He's gotten it yet, Remember that we gather together to remember and proclaim that he has died, he has risen. And friends, if you feel like he doesn't have the last word yet, remember that he is coming again. The resurrection tells us that sin won't have the last word. The resurrection means that there's not judgment waiting for us, but instead we're secure in Christ. He died in our place so we wouldn't bear the judgment that we did deserve. He rose from the dead so that we might live the life that we never deserved. The posture that God takes to us isn't a pointed finger, but our open arms. And we know this to be true because of the work he did on the cross and because of the victory he had in the resurrection. The resurrection means that there's nothing for you to contribute to your salvation. There's nothing we could do that makes us more acceptable in the eyes of God. Only what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection makes us acceptable in the eyes of the Father only by receiving what he's, did, he's done. We can't work uh, to, to complete it. Instead, we must simply come and receive what he has done, what he has finished for us. So as we go along in the Christian life, we must continually remember that... <clears throat> We work, we work out our salvation, Philippians says. We grow in our salvation, not to complete it, because Christ completed it for us. We grow as a Christian. What we, when we grow as a Christian, what we're doing is unpacking what Jesus completed for us. We're, we're, growing, out and we're, we're growing up into and completing and furthering the work of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. 
That's the, the life of a Christian is, is remembering what Christ has done and then growing in light of it. And so as we remember the cross and the resurrection today, there are three ways for us to respond. And, and Victor and Rebecca are going to come and lead us as we close out today. As we think about what Jesus prayed on the cross and how it tells us of what he accomplished for us through the cross. And we remember the resurrection, how it secures these things for us. There's three ways that I think we can respond. We can repent and believe. That's what the Bible calls the beginning first response to this good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's a turning from our own way and a trusting in Jesus. When I said earlier that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, it's important to know his purpose, his mission, and our condition. To repent and believe is to recognize our need for him. And to believe is to receive the completed work that he's done for us. And I don't know if you consider yourself a Christian today, but if you don't, can I tell you that this message of the cross, forgiveness through Jesus in our place, is held out to anyone who has ears to hear and who sees their need and is willing to say, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe what you're talking about. I believe what Jesus did for me is enough. And I'm going to trust him. I'm going to follow him. I invite you today to do that. Put into your own words here in a moment as we pray. That God, I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. And I believe Jesus did everything that was necessary. But not only that, but we can sit and wonder. How can we not, right? To, to remember what he has done for us. To be amazed as, as the disciples left the tomb. What did they do? They left and they came and they couldn't believe it. And they left and they were amazed. It really happened. There are no bones of Jesus to be found because there was a body of Jesus that was raised from the dead. And in that same body, he's going to come again one day. Just think about that. Don't ever get over that. I don't really have anything new to say. I'm just saying what I think I say hopefully every Sunday that this is amazing. He died, he rose, and he's coming again. Sit and be amazed. And then finally, even as we do now, let's praise and pursue. Let's praise God for who he is and pursue him with all we've got. May not always be pretty. We know we can't do it in our own strength. But what else can we do if the one who died and who rose and is coming again invites us to follow him? How can we not say, Lord, you have all of me? Let's pray.